I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles uh, today to, um, I suppose, 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to be there probably the most. I want to just share, uh, just before we do it, we're going to do a lot of praying tonight. And some of you are here this morning, so this is going to be a repeat. But like Patty says, you never say the same thing twice the same way. So, you know, my, my parents, uh, we moved when I was 16 years old from the greater Vancouver area to Bellingham, Washington. And uh, they had a lot of marital issues over their, their marriage. And when we got there, um, well, my dad and mom decided to buy a tavern. And that's not a wise decision when you're an alcoholic. How many know? It's amazing how when people don't walk with God, they don't always make the best decisions. And so obviously that caused all kinds of grief in their relationship. And after a year running the, the tavern, they made a decision to separate. And so now I'm heading into my final year of high school and I'm the oldest of four, and all of a sudden I have this major responsibility because my dad moves back to Canada. And for the next four or five years of my life, I actually hardly saw my dad, to really be honest. I mean, you know, the very little contact with our family. And then the following year, my mother decided to leave Bellingham, moved to Seattle, took my two younger brothers. My sister finished her high school. And I was alone going to university. And I don't know, as I think back now, those were probably the most difficult years of my life. You know, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And, you know, God was actually at work in that difficult, adverse struggle that I was going through. And, and a number of things began to happen. I was reading a scripture this morning. It talks about, and these turn of events happened, you know. And I don't believe things just happen. I believe God is orchestrating the affairs and the events of our lives. And so uh, one of the beautiful things that happened was our high school decided to teach the Bible as history and literature, and I took that class. And it, it actually generated, first of all, I had to buy the Bible as a textbook. Hey, I didn't even own one of those things. And then I was assigned, you know, readings from the Old Testament, and I began to read in the New Testament. God's Spirit began to work in my life. And I can still remember, you know, driving to pick my father up from uh, the tavern in that first year that was... Uh, you know, just before this event and how, you know, I'm listening to Billy Graham preach. You know, I'm praying the sinner's prayer. I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on in my life. But did I understand what God was doing? And the answer is I had no idea. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just knew that there was something drawing me. God's presence was drawing me to himself. And, you know, over the course of a number of years, God finally brought me to a place where I read an interesting book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Some of you probably read that book. And it's really the story of a young pastor in Pennsylvania who was reading an, uh, uh, a newspaper caption about the gangs that were infiltrating New York City and some of the drug and substance abuse, and there was actually a murder trial, and there was some TV clips, and he was watching all of this, and God began to speak into his life and actually called him to go and minister right outside of his comfort zone, to go to New York City and start working with these gang members. And all he had was his Bible and the presence of the living God. And so he began to preach, and you know, these young people came to Christ, and many of them were now filled with the Spirit. And as I'm reading through this book, I recognize that they were having a, a subsequent experience beyond their conversion that was very life-transforming. And that attracted me. I mean, I was attracted to having a real experience with the living God. Now, a few years go by, and the next thing I know, I, I encounter some people who begin to talk to me about the baptism in the Spirit, as on the day of Pentecost. 
And as they began to share scripture with me, there was a, a deep hunger for the things of God. And so I can still remember at, at, in my friend's home with his family, they laid their hands on me and they prayed for me. And God's spirit came in a very gentle, quiet way. It wasn't, I, I have to say, it wasn't, you know, a very dynamic experience. It wasn't like, you know, I had goosebumps on goosebumps or any of those things. It was actually a very gentle, quiet experience. But God gave me at that moment a sense, you know, that something was going on. I began to speak the words that came to my mind. And the next thing you know, I was speaking in tongues. It wasn't a, a weird experience. It wasn't a, you know, an overwhelming experience, but it was a gateway. And something happened from that point on. You know, God created inside of my soul a, such a hunger for his word. You know, being a single young person, I had all kinds of time on my hands. Sure, I had a job, but, you know, I had a lot of free time. And so I would spend hours reading and studying the Bible. It was just like all of a sudden I had this amazing spiritual appetite. I just could not get enough of the things of God. And that was, I really attribute that to the Spirit of God at work in my life changing me. Now, when Jesus was about to leave planet Earth, he actually had his disciples join him in what we call the upper room. And in that last instruction before he leaves, how many recognize that the, when a person's about ready to leave the planet and they're going to say something, it probably has a little significance. And Jesus wanted to explain what was about to happen. He wanted to prepare his disciples. And we have these beautiful chapters outlined for us in the Gospel of John. John 14, 15, and 16. I'm not going to read all three chapters, but what we're going to do is look at the highlights of some of the things that Jesus said regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, uh, wow, we're at the end of my sermon. I don't know. I've got to go backwards? Okay. That's going to be a lot of scriptures. What's that? A little slower? I'm, I'm, I'm going backwards. This is a sermon backwards. Sorry, guys. And you have no idea, I have 81 of these. We didn't set this up correctly. I apologize for that. But let me just go back here and start in John chapter 14 and verse 25. It says, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Wow, is there an end to this? I did? Just start it over again for me. You guys could do that from back there. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counsel of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, how many here can honestly say there's a few times you need a little help remembering things? You know, and one of the work of the Spirit of God is actually to remind us of some of the things that he has said to us. And that's what he promised the disciples. You know, there was a lot of things Jesus said that they could have easily forgotten. How many know that's true? How many can say, I forget a few things? And so Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to come moments in your life where you're going to remember some things because by 
The Spirit of God's going to come and remind you what I said about these things. I think that's very important. Then he goes on to say, And when the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So what what we understand is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring Christ to the forefront. And I'm really convinced that what the Holy Spirit does is make Christ more real to us. And really, that's, that's what he's about. That's what he's trying to do is exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you were probably here last week. Did you get a sense that we were exalting Christ? And as I talked about his name above every name, did you get a sense of that? And so our church family focuses on the person of Jesus. I'm going to get that sense. Okay, but one of the problems in the evangelical church is we, we believe that we're Trinitarians. You know, what we believe is this, that there are three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But one of the problems is we talk about God the Father, we talk about his nature, we talk about his, his creation, we talk about the fact that he, you know, he sent his Son, and we talk about the Son a lot, we talk about Jesus, we talk about his redemptive work. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you know, the evangelical church disappears. They hardly talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it's important that we actually understand that the Holy Spirit is actually a distinctly different person in the Trinity. And so it's not the Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of Christ. He is a distinct person. Now he has a role to play. And what we're reading here and seeing here from John's Gospel is that his primary ministry is to make Christ real to us. And then it says, and you must also testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Then in John 16 he goes, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Isn't that interesting? I could just see the disciples going, wait a minute. You know, we don't want you to leave. You know what I'm saying? We want you to stay. We've been hanging with you, Jesus. It's been an amazing experience. We've walked with you for over three years. And that last week I brought out the fact that, you know, he's the most amazing person. And they were hanging with God. And they were watching all of these miracles. And I talked about how exciting that would be, would be to walk with Jesus every day, to see him in the flesh. I mean, he was in a bodily form, functioning, and the miracles that they were seeing. And what he was saying was mind-boggling. They'd never heard this stuff before. Yeah, they had heard the Bible, they had heard their teachers, but the way Jesus was explaining it, everything was making sense. It was all lining up in their minds. And so they were following him. But when he said, hey, I've got to go, that freaked them out. And they said, hey, we're going to go with you. And Jesus said, you can't go with me. You know, you can't go where I'm going. Where are you going, they said. We want to go with you. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, But he says, I have to go. It's important that I go. It's advantageous that I go. And the reason why Jesus is saying this is because as God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was limited and he limited himself to be at one place at one time. And if he's going to send the disciples all over the world, he couldn't be with them. And yet he promises them when he's sending them out. Remember the Great Commission. He says, go into all the nations. You know, preach the gospel to all creation. He talks about that in Mark's gospel. Matthew says, go into all the nations and, ba- and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you know, a lot of times we stop there. And I'll tell you right now, you and I cannot do this apart from verse 20. And verse 20 says it this way. He says, 
Lo, I am with you even until the very end of the age. The only reason you and I can go and be effective is the fact that God is going to go with us. And how does God go with us? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. That's the thing. And that's what we need to understand. Because really, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't do this. And even though they had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, I can't think of a better college experience. I can't think of any schooling that would have been greater than to have hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. How many think that would have been pretty good? That's the ultimate teacher. That's the ultimate experience. And yet Jesus said to them, don't even bother going until the Holy Spirit comes because you're not going to succeed without the Holy Spirit. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. How many know that's not our job? Now, some people try to do that. You know, we all want to help God out, and we're all telling everybody what they need to do in their life, you know? We're all trying to convict people. It doesn't work. How many have tried it? And it doesn't work. You can nag, you can, you know, and, you know, sometimes as concerned parents, we tell our kids stuff. You know, here's the secret, folks. Get on your knees and pray. And talk to the Father and say, Father, can you please convict them? That's a better approach. And God can do that. He says he'll do that. It's the work of the Spirit. In regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. That's that's the problem. That's the big issue, by the way, in this world. That people are in a state of unbelief. Then he goes on in regards to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. It's not that God is out here condemning people. It's that God has condemned the work of Satan. By dying on the cross. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so we have to be careful as Christians that we're not walking around condemning people. Right? And if you were here a month ago, I said, we neither condemn nor condone. Right? You guys follow all of this? I know some of you are with me. If you've been to these sermons, you actually remember some of it. The Holy Spirit's helping you. That's good. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. So in other words, Jesus said, listen... I'm trying to download a lot of stuff tonight, but I can't say everything. But I have a confidence that the Holy Spirit's going to come, and whatever needs to be said and done is going to be said and done. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Wow, isn't that awesome? The Spirit of God will guide us into truth, and he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Do you know, isn't it amazing? Sometimes the Spirit of God can actually tell you things about what is about to happen. God can drop that stuff in your spirit. It says so right here. And that's a very awesome thing, that the Spirit of God can do that. And then he goes on. Uh, he says, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. And that's really the work of the Spirit. How many times am I sitting there reading the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is speaking through his Word into my life? And things are coming alive inside of me. He's connecting the dots for me. I'm getting the picture. I'm beginning to understand. You know, how many of you have ever had this experience? You go, I've read this, I don't know how many times, and all of a sudden I'm getting it. And I, wanted, I want you to know that you and I don't know everything. You know, there's things that he's going to make known to you in the future yet. And so we need to be a little humble. You know, sometimes we're wanting to tell people everything. Well, we don't know everything. We just know the one who knows everything. There's a big difference. And all that belongs to the Father's mind, and that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Isn't that interesting? An interesting statement. Jesus said... 
that the promise, what is he talking about? See, in the Old Testament, you read about the promise. What are they talking about? It's usually the land, or it's usually descendants. But here, in, you know, one of the promises that he promised was the Spirit, and, and uh, we're going to see that when Peter starts explaining what is happening on the day of Pentecost. He's basically describing that this is now the age of the Spirit. And I wrote down in my notes here, I said, isn't it fascinating that Jesus said, don't even bother going until you have the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you go, well, you know, we have the Holy Spirit. We're saved. Yes, that's a right understanding. We, we cannot be saved apart from the Holy Spirit. We need to know that. You know, we, we're born again by the Spirit. So we understand that. But what he's talking about here, what happens on the day of Pentecost, is not just them being born again. They've been hanging with Jesus for three and a half years. John chapter 20, Jesus says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. So something is happening that's a little distinct, I believe, and I know not everybody agrees with this position because a lot of Christians think, you know, the day of Pentecost, people were just getting saved. Well, I'm sorry. There's more happening there than that. And that's what we need to understand. This is the inauguration of the age of the Spirit. And we're going to see other things begin to happen. That if you believe that, if you believe that the day of Pentecost is your salvation, then you have to believe that the expression of speaking in tongues is part of salvation. And I don't believe that. Okay? I don't believe that. So I think something subsequent is happening on the day of Pentecost. That's what you need to understand. And I'm going to try to show that through the scriptures here. Now, it's interesting. He says, wait in the city until you've been clothed with what? Power from on high. That you've been endued with power. That God's presence comes into your life. And that the spirit comes and there's a manifestation of power. You know, most Christians, when I talk to them, I don't get a sense that we think we have power. Isn't that true? Because we don't understand what God is really doing. And we have a little confusion. And here's a couple of the confusions. There's some paradoxes in the scripture. Here, here they are. We cannot understand how in weakness God reveals strength. That's a paradox to us. How can we be weak and yet be strong at the same time? And yet when I study the scriptures, I see those two things coming hand in hand. That God is manifesting his power through human weakness. That's a paradox. You know, that's one of the paradoxes we're struggling with. Here's another one. How can we have, right now, we're in this age of the Spirit, so we're already experiencing what God wants to give to us, and yet there's a sense that we haven't yet attained to everything. So there's a sense that we have it, but yet we don't have it. There's more to come. And so we have a measure of it. We don't have the fullness of it. We have an experience of it. That's another tension that we find in the New Testament. So we're living... And so what happens sometimes is you have Christians who focus on one of those sides or the others. You have Christians who focus on, you know, what we don't have. We, we focus on the crucified life. We focus on the weakness. We focus on, you know, I'm crucified with Christ. We focus on, you know, that element of the Christian life. And then there's other people who have a triumphal mentality where we talk about experiencing the power of res resurrection. We talk about the power of the Spirit. And so I want to say to you that both of those things are true at the same time. And that's why it's so confusing to us, because they're both happening at the same moment. Now, I love what Dr. Gordon Fee writes in his book, and I, I mentioned this, the name of the book, because some of you want to continue to pursue this and understand this topic. 
Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. Very good book, and it'll explain how the New Testament actually speaks of, it's, it's about the Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit. This is the age of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just Luke's accounts in the, uh, in the book of Acts. It's also in the epistles. And you're going to see the life of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to us that our greatest adversary isn't the devil, as much as he is an adversary. My greatest issues aren't with him. My greatest issues are with myself and my own sin nature. You see, I struggle with that far more than the other, to be honest. And that's important that we understand that. And so Paul writes to us in the book of Galatians, if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. So in other words, you know, if I'm living in, in spirit, and you know, really the Christian life is the spiritual life. And Paul writes in Romans, he says, the kingdom of God isn't meat nor drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. And so the kingdom of God is in the spirit. And we need to understand that. It's a life in the spirit. And we have to live in the spirit. And we have to allow the spirit to have control of our lives. We need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's very important. But a lot of us don't get that. What happens is we allow our sin nature to be in control. And that's when we get into all kinds of troubles. That's when we, you know, we have conflict and we have, you know, sin issues in our lives and we're living in a state of defeat and we're discouraged and we're demoralized. Folks, we have to live in the Spirit. And that's what the New Testament keeps saying over and over again. So he goes on to say, the outpouring of the Spirit meant for Paul that God had fulfilled his promise to dwell once again in and among his people. Isn't that great? God says, I'm gonna live inside of you. And then he goes on, Pre presence is a delicious word because it points to one of our truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of presence. Not gifts, not telephone calls, not pictures, not mementos, nothing. Do you know that everything else is a substitute for the real thing? You know, if I give somebody a gift, that's nice, but it's not, unless I'm giving myself, it's less than the ultimate. And isn't it awesome when God says, you know, how much more will I give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? That's what Luke says. You know, when I was reading that one time, I had an epiphany one. I'm reading the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going down here, and I go, he didn't even mention the Holy Spirit. And yet, what God wants to give to us is nothing short of his very presence. That's the ultimate gift. You can't give anybody anything more than the gift of yourself. And God says, I'm going to give you myself. You know, ask the person who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss the most. The answer is inevitably presence. I miss their presence. When we're ill, we don't need soothing words nearly as much as we need the loved ones to be present. I remember one time Andrea's sick, and she phones her house and goes, I need my mom. <laughs> She's married, right? You know, Patty has to go over to her house. What did she want? She wanted presence. You know, she could have taken the medicine, you know, she could have gone to bed, but what she was saying is, I don't feel good, and what I want is the presence of this person that I know will love me. Very powerful. What makes shared life? The games we're playing, the walks, the concerts, the outings, and a myriad of other things so pleasurable? It's not those activities. It's the person we do it with. That's what makes those things pleasurable. It's the presence of that person. God has made us this way in his own image because he himself uh, is, 
a personal, relational being. The great problem with the fall is that we not only lost our vision of God, that is, his true character has been distorted, but also our relationship with God um, no long, you know, and thus no longer we knew his abiding presence. For Paul, the coming of Christ in the Spirit changed this forever. See, what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They got banished from the presence of God. They got cast out of the garden. The garden speaks of intimacy with God. Did you know that? All the garden scenes in the Bible, that's speaking of intimacy. I don't know if you know that. And they were cast out of intimacy. They were cast out of his presence. Wow. And so Jesus came to restore the presence through his death. And, how, and so now we actually get his presence in the person of the Holy Spirit who is making Christ known and real to us. So when the Feast of Pentecost arrives, what's happening is that God's promise is now being fulfilled. And so Peter now is trying to explain to people what in the world is happening. Because you can imagine this was a very dynamic experience. The day of Pentecost, by the way, was actually a Jewish feast. And it was one of those three feasts that all the Jewish men had to gather in Jerusalem. And they were all there. And when the Spirit of God came, the supernatural became released in a very profound way. Uh, Peter then stands up with the 11. He raises his voice and he addresses the crowd and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk. See, earlier in the passage it said they were mocking and said these men are drunk. What they were saying is they're under the influence of alcohol. But Peter goes, no, 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 that's not what's happening here. They are under the influence of something other than alcohol. He says, it's not that they're drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. In other words, no Jewish person would be inebriated at 9 a.m. and at least be a godly person. That wouldn't happen. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. In other words, something will happen to their ability to communicate. How many catch that? Prophecy is actually a verbal gift. There's a communication in. Something's going to happen to them. They're going to be able to communicate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now notice in this text how the Holy Spirit renders, and I love this, no distinctions. The Spirit comes upon men and women. There's no gender distinction. Oh, this is awesome. Then it goes, there's old people and young people. There's no age distinction. The Holy Spirit just comes upon people of every Descript that you know it doesn't matter what social class, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy, if they're slaves in the empire, the spirit of God falls and something dynamic happens in their lives. Then it says here that on this day we get a little background to what happened just prior to the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, Wait in the city of Jerusalem. So what were they doing? They were waiting, they were in the upper room. And in chapter one, it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. In other words, there was a union of communion amongst the church. They were in unity, they were praying, they were seeking, they were calling out to God. They wanted to experience the promise, which is the Spirit. And they were crying out for this. And they were waiting on God. And it says, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And it says, in those days, Peter stood up 
among the believers, to a group numbering about 120. Now, I want you to think about this. 120 people are going to experience the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and what is it going to do? It's going to totally revolutionize our world. See, I know a lot of us think, oh, we've got to get all these people involved, and you know, if we have masses of people, we can change the world. You know what we really need? We only need the presence of God to fall on people so that we come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what begins to impact our world. And this could not be contained in an upper room. As you keep reading, and I know it's very difficult because... Obviously, Luke is giving a narrative, but he's kind of skipping a few things. You know, they go from the upper room, and all of a sudden, everybody in the city is hearing them. And so there's been debates as to which house they were in, the upper room or the temple. But anyways, these guys now are experiencing something. And in Acts chapter 2, we get the experience. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came on to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. How many can see that Peter's basically saying, this is what Joel said. When the Spirit comes, you're going to have the Spirit falling on men and women, and they're going to be prophesying. They're going to, they're, they're, they're going to be affected in their communication. You see that? But now here they speak in other tongues. And they speak in such a way that the other Jews that are there in the city are hearing them because these are Jews that are in the, what they call the dispersa. They were the people that were living in other parts of the world who had come to Jerusalem and they spoke other languages. They could hear them praising God. Now, what they didn't hear them do was preach the gospel. They heard them praising God. Peter had to eventually preach the gospel. But before he preached the gospel, he had to explain what was happening. I always love this. You know, we're so funny as Christians. We go, you know, we got to help everybody understand. we got to dummy the gospel down so people can understand. I'm going, that's not what they did in the New Testament. What they did was they sought God. The Spirit of God came. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. People didn't understand what was going on. Peter had to explain what was going on. I say to myself, wouldn't it be great if non-believers came to our church and go, man, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. Could you please explain it to me? Because a lot of times when you go to church, nothing is going on. You don't have to explain anything. That's the problem. You know, it would be better if God was moving and you know there were things happening and you have to explain it to people. It's just a thought. I think it's a good thought. You know, and I think there'd be a lot more openness to the things of God. Because I'm going to just say this right now. Our culture is realizing that all of our science and technology is not satisfying the craving and the, and the, and the longing within the human soul. And so we notice on television today, many of the programs are dealing with things of the occult. It's dealing with the evil supernatural. It's dealing with the dark side. It's dealing with witchcraft and mediums and all kinds of dark stuff. And people are embracing it today because there's a spiritual hunger inside the human heart. And meanwhile, the church says, oh, but we don't believe that's even for today. I'm going, excuse me, Satan's working. And I'll tell you right now, in other parts of the world, the gospel is working because people are moving in the spirit and they're seeing marvelous miracles happen in Asia and South America and Africa. They're experiencing these things. Meanwhile, in North America, we're rationalizing it all away. And that's a tragedy, folks. 
Because the church in North America is struggling. You don't realize that, but I am aware of what's going on. We're in a state of decline. We're moving away from God, not towards God. As a culture, I'm speaking. And that's a great tragedy. And I think what needs to happen is we need an encounter with the Spirit of God. Now, no Christian, biblical scholar, could deny that the early church was a charismatic church. They can't. Because you read the story in the book of Acts, they're all charismaniacs. I hate to tell you this, but it's the truth. And then you read the epistle, and it's talking about the Spirit. So let me just kind of point out a few texts of Scripture. You know, I know this always bugs people, but I like to point a few things out to people. First of all, all of the apostles were tongue talkers. If that freaks you out, you just need to know that. And number two, and I always, and I jokingly say this because my relatives are all Catholics, you know, I always point out Mary was a tongue talker. Do you guys know that? Read the scripture. She was in the upper room. All of them got it. Everybody in the upper room spoke in tongues. It wasn't just some got it and some didn't. It wasn't just the 12 got it and the rest didn't. Everybody got it. And so, bless her heart, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was speaking in tongues. I'm just pointing that out. Read the Bible. You got to read the Bible for what it says. Then we go, well, you know, you know, you got Peter now. And he's preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. And while he's speaking the words of the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes on all who hear the message. And, you know, and then it goes on to say, the circumcised, the, the six guys that Peter brought because he was a little afraid to go to a Gentile's house, he had to bring a few backup witnesses, right? Even though the Holy Spirit told him to go there, he's going, I'm bringing you guys along for, you know, <laughs> you know. How many know we, we don't always like to do things by ourselves? So he drags these guys along, and they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, how do you know that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them? Luke tells us in his narrative. He says, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Isn't that interesting? So what does that tell you? That one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is being poured out is speaking in tongues. Now, I notice in this passage, it didn't say there was a violent wind. It didn't say there was tongues over their heads. It just says they heard them speaking in tongues. And in Acts chapter 11, he goes on to say, when he's making a defense for why he met with these Gentiles, he's telling the story. He said, hey, they got the same gift we did on the day of Pentecost. Man, these guys were speaking in tongues like we were. I mean, who was I to not accept these guys? Man, evidently, God is accepting Gentiles. They're repenting. They're coming into the kingdom. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing the same things we're experiencing. You know, but then I read these beautiful scholars and they say, well, the reason why this happened was because, you know, Pentecost was the door to the Jews and now the story in Acts 10 is the doorway to the Gentiles. But then what do I do with Acts chapter 19? When Paul shows up at Ephesus, this is a bunch more Gentiles. And it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. What is Luke telling us? It's the age of the Spirit. The Spirit is coming, and the spiritual gifts are being released into the life of the church. Now, I know there's a bunch of people out there that go, well, you know, Pastor, that all ceased in the first century. I've heard this argument. I've read it, but I don't think it's good biblical interpretation because what the passage they use is they say, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is not needed is done away with. And I'm kind of going, well, to me, they say that which is perfect has come 
or which is being fulfilled as the scriptures. And I go, I don't think that's what it means. I think it's speaking of when Christ comes back. As a matter of fact, how many recognize that, you know, listen to what Peter says. In, he's quoting Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. Do you know what days we're living in? We're living in the last days. The last days have been going on since the time of Christ's death and resurrection. That's the beginning of the last days. We're still in the last days, and we're still in the age of the Spirit. So why would the Spirit cease? See, it doesn't even, it's not even making sense when you think about it. That argument doesn't fly. And it's all based on a few scholars, you know. And I love scholars, by the way. I study all the time. But sometimes I disagree with some of their positions because I don't even think they can hold them very carefully. Listen to what Irenaeus of Lyons wrote. Now, he was, the, he was mentored and discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp died as a martyr, 86 years old. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. Okay? So now you've got the church is now almost 200 years old. You know, this was written in 180 A.D., Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. And in it, Irenaeus' position is he believed that the prophetic gifts originated with God. I like that. And then he says, though spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy, are partial, yet they will remain with the church until the second advent. How many know what the second advent is? Christ coming again. Then he says, thus prophecy and tongues were intended by God to remain in the church through history and healing is also a part of the permanent possession of the church. So in the second century, Irenaeus, one of our church fathers, says, you need to understand the charisma, the gifts, the spirit, the work of the spirit is here until Jesus comes back again. Okay? So I actually take his word for it. I'm just going to tell you where I'm at. Now, let me just switch gears here a little bit because... I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to explain something to us. I could spend hours teaching on this. How many can see that? It's easy to do, but I'm doing a highlight reel, okay? I could talk about how they went to Samaria and they laid hands on them and all of a sudden when, when the magician Simon saw that they were filled with the Spirit and the question is, what did he see, you know? And then we could go to the Apostle Paul and his conversion on the road to Damascus, and we could look at Ananias laying hands on him, and he was filled with the Spirit. And then it doesn't say he spoke with tongues, but we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. When did he get that gift? And I think it's back when Ananias laid his hands on him. But those are arguments from silence. So I'm not going into all that detail, but what I'm suggesting is those are very real possibilities. Okay? But what I want to focus in on is that this gift of speaking in tongues, because I think it's created a lot of fear and confusion in the church. I'm suggesting that one of the evidences of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not just that we're getting saved at that moment, but that the Holy Spirit's coming in a sequential way, and he's coming to release his power and energy into our lives to make us more effective in our ministry to outsiders and insiders. He's releasing his presence in us in a supernatural way. And I believe that we're, we have a supernatural God. I've read the Bible. There's a lot of miracles in the Bible. God is a supernatural God. And so I believe in the supernatural. And so I've seen the supernatural because I believe in it. It's not just, you know, hearsay. Now, why I'm saying all of this is because there's a distinction between the gift of tongues 
that Paul's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 14 when he's talking about how it operates in a church context, and the gift of tongues as a private prayer language. And why I bring that up is because I want to show you some scriptures here. In the book of Romans, it says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with words that, uh, groans that words cannot express. Now, how many here, if you've ever had a time in your life where you go, I'm in a crisis, but I don't even know how to pray about it. I don't even know what to say anymore. I've been there. You know, it's really great when you have this prayer language and you can just start praying in the Spirit because you just go, I don't even know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit at that point starts interceding. That's a wonderful thing to start happening in our lives. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Because sometimes I go, I don't know what God's will is in this situation. Anybody ever have that experience? I don't always know what God wants to do. I have to be honest. I'm just... You know, God does share some things with me, but a lot of things he doesn't tell me. I have no idea. And so, I, you know, sometimes you go, I don't even know how to pray for this person because I don't even know what God's will is. They're asking for this. Boy, it's a lot nicer when you're just praying in the Spirit because I know the Spirit knows the will of the Father, and he's going to pray that will. Okay. Then it says in Ephesians, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Oh, this is getting scary, because you know a lot of people go, I don't want to lose control, number one. Number two, I always want to know what's going on. Well, when you're praying in tongues, I'm going to tell you right now, you haven't got a clue what you're saying. And for some people, that's too freaky. And for some people, they go, I don't like that. And I'm just going, I don't have a problem with this. And I'll tell you why. Because I read Proverbs 3, 5, and it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what? Don't lean to your own understanding. So it's okay at times to not totally understand. As a matter of fact, as I get older, I'm more comfortable with mystery. I have now come to the stage where I believe that if you can explain everything God is doing, you don't don't know the God of the Bible. Because God is a lot bigger than humanity. He's infinite. We're finite. There's a lot of mystery to God. I'm okay with mystery. I'm okay with saying, you know, there's a lot of things God's revealed to us. There's a lot that we can learn. There's a lot that we can understand. But I don't believe God's obligated to tell us everything. And by the way, he doesn't tell us everything. Read the Bible carefully. He doesn't give us all the answers. Because if he did that, you wouldn't have to have faith. You would have the answers. Sometimes he's asking you just to trust him. I go, I don't know what's going on here. But, okay, God, I believe you're in charge. I'm going to just trust you. That's called faith, folks. I'm trusting God. That's what he wants us to learn how to do. Then he goes on to say this. So what should I do? I pray with my spirit, and I also pray with my mind. In other words, it's possible that I can be praying, and many times I'm praying with my mind. In other words, I hear what the request is, and I'm praying, and I'm praying specifically. I'm praying with my mind. But there's other times I'm praying with my spirit. Now, that doesn't always mean that I'm praying in tongues, but sometimes what happens is as I start to pray, I sense the spirit, and I start praying, and pretty soon I don't even realize what I'm praying. And some of you have that way, right? You've just started praying, all of a sudden you're praying and you don't even know why you're praying this. You're just going down a track. It's because the Spirit is now in control. That's praying in the Spirit. So it's tongues and 
when the Spirit of God comes upon you like that. Then you read Jude 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. I wanted to bring that text because, you know, Jude isn't the person. You know, this one little chapter, he says, pray in the Holy Ghost. What is he talking about here? And I love this. Now I remember you in the service, Mark, the second service, because I said this then. You know, it's interesting that the biblical scholars... And I have some very technical commentaries in my office. And I mean lots of Greek in them or lots of Hebrew in them. I mean, these guys are arguing fine points. Most of you go, it's too boring for me. But, you know, I'm reading the scholar, and I just decided I'm going to look up what a biblical scholar says about Jude 20. What does he think praying in the Holy Ghost means? Okay? This guy's not a charismatic. He's not a Pentecost. He's evangelical, right? He's, he's a scholar. Some of these guys, I wonder if they're even saved sometimes. But... That's neither here nor there. This guy probably is. But this is what he writes. He says, to pray in the Holy Spirit means in control of the Spirit or under the inspiration of the Spirit. And with reference to prayer indicates charismatic prayer in which words are given by the Spirit. See, he's writing to try to understand what is happening in the first century. He's not worried about how we're going to apply it in the 21st century. He's not worried about all the controversies we've created. He's just saying, this is what happened there. This is what Jude was talking about. And then he says this. He says, praying in the Spirit includes, but is not restricted to prayer in tongues. In other words, he's saying when you're praying in the Holy Ghost, this also means that you're praying in tongues but it could even be more than that. And I've already described to you what I mean by praying in the Spirit. It's that idea of the Holy Spirit, you know, inspiring you. You know, there's times I am teaching, and I've done this. Some of you have been here. Monday nights or Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights where I've led prayer meeting. I've gotten up here, opened the Bible up, and I just started speaking. How many have ever been in one of those things that I've done that? And all of a sudden, I just start teaching. I can speak for 45 minutes or an hour. I can just go. You go, how does he do that? The Spirit. The Spirit of God, just like that. He just takes over, and he just starts, I just start talking like that. I just start explaining truths. I just go, bing, 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 bing. It's the work of the Spirit. You need to understand that. <laughs> you know, we want to limit God. I'm going, no. It's, it's more dynamic than that. So for those who are questioning the value of speaking in tongues as a prayer language because of the abuses in the Corinthian church, I want to just point out a couple of things here. And here's the first one. What is its value? Before we dismiss tongues, as many do today, maybe we need to say what the Bible has to say about the spiritual gift. Paul describes it as a spiritual gift. How many think that's important? It's a gift. Number, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 2 says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Now, this is what I truly believe after reading the Bible. I believe that tongues is both a language that... Others can understand at times, but it's also a divine language. And you know why the Corinthians love tongues so much? Because Paul says to them, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it's not going to do me any good. So he's basically saying, you, any one of these gifts, it has to be operated in love. Otherwise, you see all these abuses. It's got to be motivated out of love. But he says, listen, you're speaking to God. That's great. And he says, but I would rather have you prophesy. Who is he speaking to? The Corinthians, and he's speaking about their church service. Why? Because when you're prophesying, people can understand what you're saying. 
And that's why Paul says, I'd rather speak, you know, five words in an intelligible language than to speak 10,000 words in tongues. Why? Because in a church service, it's not going to help anybody to have somebody speaking in tongues. If I just got up here for an hour and spoke in tongues, you'd go, it's not doing me any good. I'm listening to you, and I'm not getting a thing out of it, Pastor. That's true. You wouldn't. And so I don't do that because the Bible says don't do that. You know? Now, it goes on here to say, Paul says this, um, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Then he goes on, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. I've even read this. Tongues is a selfish gift. I've read that because it builds people up. It's a selfish gift. I'm going, excuse me, why would God give something that's selfish to us? He's against that. What he's saying is, it builds you up. How many know that if you're discouraged, it's pretty hard to encourage people? If you're struggling with doubt and unbelief, it's pretty hard to bless people. I'm just pointing that out. How many think it's kind of important to be built up? Then when you're built up, you can help other people. So I don't think it's a bad thing to be built up. It makes sense. I'm built up so I can build up others. All of these gifts are designed to benefit others, not just ourselves. It does benefit us, but it also benefits others. Paul also promotes speaking in tongues. Look what verse 5 says. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Now, I think that's an important statement. That suggests to me that everyone can speak in tongues. Some people, oh, there's another verse that says not everybody speaks in tongues. I'll get to that verse. But let me, let me just point out to you. Paul says, he's telling these guys, hey, I'm not upset that you guys are speaking in tongues. What I have a problem with is where you're doing it. But I'd rather have you prophesy. In other words, I'd rather have you do something that would benefit the church and not just, you know, think you guys are walking around talking to angels. You know, you're talking angel language. He says, he who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongue unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. You see what he's doing? He says, tongues isn't a problem as long as there's an interpretation in the church. And by the way, I always say to people, if you've got the gift of tongues and you're going to speak it in the church, you better know someone's going to interpret. And if you don't know that, you better be prepared to interpret or be quiet. It says so right in the text. I'm not going to read all these verses, but um, then Paul says something very interesting. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, how could he say that? How could Paul come up with this conclusion? You know what I think Paul's saying? The only time you guys speak in tongues is at church. He says, I don't speak in tongues at church. I speak it when I'm away from church. But you guys, it's just a big show for you guys. And it means nothing. You're not even exercising this in your private life. I think when Paul left the church, he spoke in tongues a lot. Why? Because he said he did. So I, how many think, you know, Paul's kind of, a, kind of a super saint in some ways? I mean, this guy, really God used in an amazing way. Wouldn't you say that's true? He had a lot of revelation and insight. He was really used of God. But he, ex, he said there's a lot of value in this gift because if he's practicing this, that tells me this must be important. How many see that? You know, he's not just blowing steam here. He's just saying, hey, that's the truth. Now let me just move on here. We could easily, see, that's the, I'll, I'll only speak five intelligible words rather than, uh, so people can get it in the main service. He cautions regarding the misuse of the gifts. You know how often it's our reaction to abuse that causes us to reject? You know, I said this, I kind of shocked people in the second service. I said, why is it that some men hate women? And why is it that some women hate men? And the answer is, because they've been abused. That's all. 
That's the reason. And I think sometimes, you know, we've been in a situation where somebody used a gift and he abused us and we're totally turned off. And so what do we do? We throw the baby out with the bathwater. We overreact to it, reject everything. Now, the second thing we need to understand about tongues is the proper exercise of the gift. We looked at its value, but I, I, how, did, how should this be expressed? How, sh- how should the administration of the gifts be utilized so there's no abuse? Some would argue that this gift is not available to all believers. I've already suggested that. And they quote 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So what is Paul now saying here? You know what he's trying to say to us? Every one of us should be participating. That's what he's trying to get across. And we're all bringing something different to the equation. He says, in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, and also those having the gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with the gifts of administration, and those speaking with different kinds of tongues. I always think it's a fascinating chapter because he's squeezing between healing and speaking in tongues helps and administration. How many think that's kind of interesting? You got the supernatural and the natural, and they're just flowing together. And they're both gifts, and they're both important. See, we go, oh, well, this gift is more important because it's like, oh, it's in this realm, and this gift is more important. You know what? The most important gift at that moment is the gift that is needed. That's the most important gift at that moment. Okay. Then he goes on to say, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles? He says, do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? What's the answer? According to this chapter, the answer is no. They don't all do this. But let me point out something about this. First of all, then we read, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, I've heard this. The greater gifts, what some people believe, is the gift of love. Now, I want to just tell you right now, love is not a gift. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the result of the Spirit. It's a mature result of the work of the Spirit of God. And when we read Galatians 5.22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then it says joy and peace, and it continues on. I'm convinced the fruit is in the singular term. The fruit, singular, is love. And the other eight expressions are all expressions of what love is. Joy and peace and self-control, gentleness, right? Those are all expressions of love. So what am I saying? I'm saying simply this. The earnest but desire the greater gifts. What is he really saying? I think he's saying desire the gifts that are going to benefit the body. And desire the gifts collectively I would say we want all the gifts, and we want people to be participating in the life of the church, everybody exercising their gift. Because the Bible doesn't, you know, you don't walk up to God and go, oh, I think I'll take one miracle gift, I think I'll take one healing gift. That's not how it operates. We don't tell God what gift we're going to get. The Bible says that's the Holy Spirit, he's the one that's the giver of the gifts, and he gives to whom he wills. And he decides who has the gifts. Now, let me point something out to us. Just because someone prophesies, does that make them a prophet? No, it doesn't. Because I read about King Saul in the Old Testament. He's a king. He's not a prophet. He's prophesying because the Spirit of God is upon him. He's not a prophet. So I can say this. All prophets prophesy, but not everybody that prophesies is a prophet. All people teach, by the way. Parents teach their children. But not all 
people that teach are teachers. Some people have an office of a teacher in the church. They have a gift. That's their office. And you can tell they have that gift. Because when they teach, people listen. And they're able to explain things so people get it. You know, not all people are missionaries or people who go out and start and develop beginning parts of works. Not all have an apostolic ministry. But, you know, every once in a while people start things and it's a brand new work. But that doesn't mean they're an apostle. Why am I saying this? I'm saying these things because a lot of people then, you know, they, they, they get this confusion about, you know, this business of speaking in tongues. What we need to understand is there's a gift of speaking in tongues in a public assembly. There is a gift. But I'm also convinced all of us can have the gift of speaking in tongues as a prayer language. That's a distinctly different thing. And we get confused by that. And so a lot of people go, well, I don't have the gift of speaking in tongues because the Bible says not everybody has the gift of speaking in tongues. And yet Paul says, I would that you all had this gift. And I actually speak in tongues more than you all. But he's not talking about in the context of the public service. He's talking about the context, I'm convinced, of a prayer life, which is a lot different. Okay? That's why James could tell us, and Jude, sorry, Jude can tell us here in Jude chapter 20, but dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me close, because I'm a few minutes over. It says... What do we learn from all of this? I could keep, you know, wrapping out scriptures here, but I'm not going to do that. We discover, first of all, that tongues in a worship service must have an interpretation. That tongues can only be done two at the most by three, and there must be an interpretation. And everybody else that's listening to it should be deciding if this is actually a message from God. It does say that. You know, if we keep going down here, it says, if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. We have to discern. That's where the discerning of spirits comes in. We think it's discerning if it's evil or not. No, it's the discerning if this is really what God is saying or not. And by the way, anybody that tells you something that's contrary to the word of God, that's not of God. Think about it. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Why would he say something that's contradictory to what he's already said? So when I'm listening to people, if that's in conflict to what the Scripture's saying, I'm going, sorry, that's not of God. That's coming out of your own head. Or worse, it's coming from the pit. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing is, we have this funny idea that if people are doing things, that they're always going to operate perfectly. No, 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 no. People do all kinds of crazy things and make all kinds of mistakes. But we have to have a little attitude with people. It's part of training people. People are going to make mistakes. So you don't come crunching down, you know, that, you know blah, blah. You know, you do it. No, you listen. What you just said there is not biblical. Let me explain to you the scriptures here. And we teach them. And just so the rest of you understand something, if we have spiritual gifts in our church operating and they get out of order, it's my job as the pastor to deal with it. You don't think so? Listen what it says. Um, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. How many people today actually forbid it? Are there, are there churches that forbid speaking in tongues? Yes, there are. They won't let people do that. But it says don't forbid. You know, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So I, I look at it this. It's my responsibility as a church leader to make sure that things are done decently and in order. So if you get out of order, I'll just come and talk to you. And if you say something publicly that's wrong, I'll correct you publicly. 
in a nice way, Patty said. Yeah, I'll, I will be gracious about it. You know, I'll try to be, you know, I try to be gracious with people. Let me, let me understand. Like, I don't have an ax to grind. But I'm not going to let people take over services and say and do stupid things. That's just not going to happen in this church. And we've had people come here and try to do weird stuff, and I've confronted them, and they're le- they left. You know, they just go out. They're not, I'm not going to put up with that because that's not healthy behavior. We're not going to let unhealthy people do their own thing here and abuse people. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch, right? That's my job. I'm the pastor, right? Okay. So now you've heard all of that. So... Here's what I want to close with, and I, I, I think this is such a profound illustration, and we can understand this. Just imagine at Christmas time, you bought somebody you really like, a beautiful gift, and you give it to them, and they don't receive it. Or they open it up, and they go, ugh. I mean, how does that make you feel as the giver? Why bother, right? And then we have, you know, we, we, we bring the gospel to a non-believer, and we share about Jesus, and we say, listen, Jesus is the indescribable gift. God's going to give you this amazing gift. He's giving you the gift of himself. He's giving you forgiveness. He's giving you eternal life. Wouldn't you like to receive Jesus? And they go, I'm not interested. Does that ever happen? Of course. And we look at that person and we go, they just turned down the greatest gift if they only knew how great this gift was, right? Doesn't that kind of how you feel? We're all so disappointed. We're just going, oh, I feel so bad. And yet when it comes to spiritual gifts, a lot of us goes, well, I don't know if I want to speak in tongues. or I, I don't know if I, if I want to have this gift in my life. Well, we're, we're, we're basically saying, you know what, God? We want to be in control of our own lives. You know, we're not ready to receive this. I'm going, there's something wrong with this thinking. We should be saying, God, here am I. Whatever you want to do in my life, whatever gift you want to operate in, do it in my life. You know, think about what Ephesians tells us. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Here's wisdom, he says. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Are we taking advantage of every opportunity? We should be. It's an evil day we're living in. You know, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really mean that prayer when we pray that prayer? God, whatever you want, I'm for it. Let's do it. I'm here. Oh, it's going to be inconvenient. Oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, it's going to cost me something. Forget it. I'm out of here, man. (laughs) I'm only here for the bennies. The benefits, you know. I'm only here when the things are working to my advantage. But if it's going to cost me something, I'm out of here. Hey, if you signed up with Jesus, you signed up for the good times and the bad times. And the tough times, that's right. Then he goes on to say, but don't get drunk on wine. In other words, don't be under the influence of wine. You know what I notice in our culture today? I'm going to close with this. You know what I notice in our culture today? Christians are more concerned about having a good time, having a good life, having a few drinks, having a party, and being under the influence. And I think a lot of Christians today, more Christians are under the influence of alcohol than they are being filled with the Spirit. Come on now. And look what happens. Under the influence of alcohol leads to what? Debauchery. You know what debauchery is? It's an excessive, uncontrolled lifestyle. And I'm going to say something. We can become very excessive 
in a lot of things. Sometimes we're excessive into sports. We're excessive into shopping. We're excessive into trips. We're excessive into all kinds of stuff that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. True? It is true. But now we're commanded. Instead, he says, be. That's an imperative, by the way, in the Greek language. Be filled. And that's in a tense. That's continuous tense. Be continually filled with the Spirit. You know when I read the book of Acts, you know what I notice? These guys didn't just get baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit one time. They got, they got filled over and over again. They had encounters with the Holy Spirit. You know, just because I got baptized in the Holy Spirit 39 years ago, do you think that's going to hold me? <laughs> that was great. But that's just the beginning. I've had encounters with the Spirit of God that were so profound since. And I can look back at those defining moments in my life. And you know what? We all need to be filled with the Spirit. So we're going to stand tonight. And this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to come at this a little differently within the morning service because I said tonight, I want to explain something to you. We're going we're gonna to have those people that want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you, you say, listen, Pastor, I want whatever God wants for me. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to experience a new prayer language. I want to start, I want to see God's spiritual, supernatural work happen inside of my life. I want to, I want to be participating in the body. I don't want to just be sitting and riding the rails. You know what I mean? In our church family, I'm not interested in a bunch of people sitting on the pews. That's not my desire. My desire is that every member do what God is equipping them, filling them, empowering them, energizing them to do. And I want the body to minister to each other. Because you know what? We cannot mature and grow and impact our city and our nation apart from every one of us doing our part. Is this making sense to you? Read Ephesians 4. So tonight you're going, I want to receive the Holy Spirit in this way. I mean, you have the Holy Spirit if you're saved. You already have that. But you're going, I want a new encounter with the Holy Spirit I want, I want this prayer language. I want whatever gift God wants to put into my life. I want to be released. I want to be activated. I want to be sent out. I want to start ministering to people in the power of the Spirit. That's you tonight. You just come forward real quick, right now. We're going to pray for you. Come right up here. Come right to the front. That's you tonight. Come right to the front. Wow. it's great. Here I thought I was going to have a whole bunch of people to help me pray for people. Look what's happening. Guys, squeeze up front. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Because you know there's a whole bunch of people behind you. Go way to the wings. Way to the wings. Way to the wings. Way to the wings. All the way over. It's great. Wow. Well, this is going to be interesting tonight. We said we'd pray for you. We're going to lay hands on you. Mark, Kimberly, Patty. Okay, Karen. I need you guys, every one of you that is full of the Holy Spirit, you've had this experience. Come on the platform with me real quick right now. You've had this experience. Come with me right now on the platform. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have a prayer language. Yeah, Daniel, come on. All of you, come and stand with me up here. Very good. Very good. I need help. See, that's why I'm getting you up here. You know, you can have, listen. Listen. If you came forward and you've already experienced this, 
you can have a new infilling while you're ministering to your brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? Is that good? Is that good, guys? Because that'll happen. That's going to happen tonight. You know, many times while I'm ministering to somebody else, God's not only downloading in them, he's downloading in me. This is good. Okay. Now, the rest of you guys, listen. Maybe you want to sit where you're at. Service has come to an end. I don't want to keep you any longer than you have to be. If you need to go somewhere, you can slip away. But if you want, you know, we're going we're gonna to spend some time here praying tonight. This is going to extend. This is a protracted service. Don't get mad at me. We're going into overtime. This is like the finals in the NHL. They went into overtime the last two games. Anybody watch that? They went into double overtime last night. I watched part of that game. They were into double overtime. We are now into overtime, okay? 